everyone. Welcome to episode 179 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. So happy to be with you here today, Chris. I'm so happy to be with you too, Emily. And it's National Poetry Month, so we're super psyched. We are ready. I brought a huge stack, really all of my poetry books I took off the shelf this morning so Chris could take a picture of me with them, which we're going to post on social media. Yes. And I'm really determined to read through them throughout the month and throughout the year. It really brings me so much pleasure. And I forget to do it sometimes. I know, right? But poetry, like it's the go to when you're feeling certain ways, I've found and I know you're the same because we've talked about that, that it's a good place to go in a lot of different moods. Yeah. And it's also like a quick fix in a certain way. You know, it's like you can consume a poem, not a whole entire book, (laughs) which I like. Right. And you feel complete. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or, get, or it feels complete. Yeah. And it does help you feel complete if, if it's hitting the right emotional need. Yeah. And I'm going to read one that did that for me just yesterday. It's called The Book of Light by Lucille Clifton. I found this little lovely book of poetry at the book barn in Niantic. And this poem caught my eye and I thought it might appeal to our listeners as well. Climbing. A woman precedes me up the long rope, her dangling braids the color of rain. Maybe I should have had braids. Maybe I should have kept the body I started, slim and possible as a boy's bone. Maybe I should have wanted less. Maybe I should have ignored the bowl in me burning to be filled. Maybe I should have wanted less. The woman passes the notch in the rope, marked 60. I rise toward it, struggling hand over hungry hand. Mm. Let's go, middle-aged gals. We've got this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So we wanted to talk about a video that we did. Yeah, we had so much fun last week rearranging our read-along books in different ways. At first, we thought it was four ways, but then we realized it was five ways. We recorded ourselves doing it. And had a fun time. We had so much fun. We put it in our monthly newsletter. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, that went out last Friday, March 31st. If you didn't get it in your inbox, check your spam folder. If it's in your spam folder, make the Book Cougars email address acceptable yeah, in, put your it in your contacts. Yeah. So we organized it by size, by read-along date, by publication date, by color, and by alpha by author. And it was a blast. We shared it with our Patreon community earlier as a little sneak peek and um, had some fun comments there because we asked people how they organize their books. So Lisa said that she organizes hers by genre and then fiction is by author's last name. Lou, she said she's kind of haphazard in her shelving strategy, but she goes by size first to get the big books in one place. Or in a single shelf, which is something that you do. I do. You, you I even built a bookcase around the size of my books. So I can totally relate to that, Lou. Mm-hmm. And then Robin happened to be in the middle of reorganizing all of her books. And she was saying that she has some types of books separated out like children's books, books about books, travel, spiritual writings, favorite authors, And then she separates out publisher books like NYRB Classics and Archipelago books. 
That's kind of cool. I like that. And we had somebody else over on YouTube say that they do the same thing. And it's, it is cool to see the spines of yes. those series because they're all similar. And sometimes they go together in, in interesting ways. And then it kind of looks like you have your own little bookstore, right? Because mm-hmm. they do that at bookstores. Which exactly. I like. Yeah. And then Karen said she organizes by genre and whether she's read them or not. And someday she hopes to alphabetize within the categories, but it's a bit unwieldy right now. So those are some Patreon folks. And then over on YouTube, My Reading Life, I really like that she says that she splits her books by genre and then organized alphabetically, except for her Stephen King collection, (laughs) which is shelved in order of publication date. Wow. Which is so cool. Right on. That is like a organizational strategy after my own heart. Although I had a realization about my need for chronology, and we can talk about that later. (laughs) Sarah organizes haphazardly with the exception of certain publishers. So she also has her NYRB, and that's New York Review of Books and their classic series that they put out. And then her Europa editions are together. Ooh, I can get behind that. They have such beautiful covers. They totally do. Yeah. Cheryl, she actually said she liked the idea of organizing in the order of the read-alongs. And then at home, she usually organizes by size or genre. Katie organizes by color. Mm. Her TBR is organized by color, is what she says. And when she can't find the spine color, she'll go to Instagram and look for the book there to see like if smart what the color yeah. combination is. Because we are talking about sometimes the cover of the book could be like fuchsia, and then the spine is black, but right. all you have in your mind is fuchsia, and you can't find the damn book. Yeah. Where is it? You know yeah. you have it, right? So that's smart. And then she says she only keeps the books that she loves sorted by author, but not alphabetical. And then she has short story collections together, which is really nice. And she says, I'm so glad that you didn't have a spines to the back option, but maybe that is your April Fool's Day video. (laughs) Darn, Katie, we we didn't think about that. Right. Next April Fool's. That's a cute idea. Yeah. Cirella said that once she's finished reading her books, they go into one of her closets and that the only ones out are her TBR. Mm. Yeah. And so she has them by different themes per bookshelf, like nonfiction, classics, Puerto Rican books, books in Spanish from other countries, black authors, women, etc. That's a really cool idea. I like that idea too. That's interesting to put them away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like that idea because you have them, but you don't, sometimes I feel like books start to feel overwhelming when I see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I like that idea. That is, yeah, I do too. And then Emily was short and to the point. She said, by genre, then alpha by author. Right on. Boom. Yeah. yeah. So thanks to everyone who watched that video and left comments. Let us know if you haven't watched it yet. How do you organize your books? Yeah, and it is available on our BookTube channel. We'll put that link in the show notes. And just so you know, the way we ended up doing it in the office, currently it is by read-along. Mm-hmm. So we just put it in order of the read-along, which I kind of like. It is neat. You know, as we said in the video, you then see in more recent years when we started with the theme, you have the books organized by theme, right. which is kind of cool Yeah, to see them together that way. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm cruising along with Voyager, the third Outlander book. And then I kind of stalled a little bit on Chase of the Goose by Mary Gordon. And that was the book uh, that originally came out in 1936 from Hogarth Press. 
and Lord Editions just put out a new edition in February. I just got kind of swept up with my research reading. So I just picked it up again yesterday. So I'm I'm doing that thing where I'm going to read a chapter a day until I get through it because I'm enjoying it. It's just I've been focused on other things. Yeah, you have a lot going on. Well, I picked up The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. This has come up on the podcast in the past. It definitely came up when we were talking to the author, Kelsey Ervick. And I've just not had much experience with it. I've heard about it. I've heard about the morning pages. So I did my first set of morning pages this morning, which is really just where you not to be crass, but barf out three pages, not trying to judge yourself, not editing, just writing it out. And when you get through that, kind of empty your brain in that way, you can get to the creative part of your brain. So I'm digging, I'm digging deep. Awesome. (laughs) Really enjoying it. So I've read through the intro and I'm on week one. It's 12 weeks long and I'm hoping to really stick with it. Very cool. Awesome. I'll be interested to hear what you have to say as you go along. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, The other thing I'm, I'm listening to a book, Writing for Impact, Eight Secrets from Science That Will Fire Up Your Reader's Brains by Bill Burchard. So this just came out April 3rd from HarperCollins Leadership. And I was able to get an early copy from Libro FM. So thank you both for that. And so what he does is he talks about how scientists have studied the brain to see like what fires when. And so these eight secrets that he has, they're... Simple, specific, surprising, stirring, seductive, smart, social, and story-driven. I'm just kind of a little ways into this, like maybe an hour into it. He talks about the scientific brain studies on why that is so. Oh, that's um, interesting. Like, because people can only take in so much information and things yeah, like that. Yeah, or like more succinct, short words mean more. Like they have more of an impact. Like he struck the ball versus... He hit it, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's really interesting. He reads it himself, which is good because then the emphasis is going in the right places. I'm wondering if it might be a book that's better off read, Mm -hmm. at least for me, than listen to, but I am enjoying listening to it. I just wanted to say one thing too. He talks about surprise when he talks about that. I sometimes feel bad when I laugh when bad things happen in movies or books, even like in the movie Elf, when Buddy gets hit by the taxi, (laughs) like you laugh or in Mean Girls when the girls get hit by a bus, right? Like it's so surprising and shocking, but you laugh. And so he talks about that as an element in writing, in storytelling, because he is talking about storytelling quite a lot, but just how that fires in the brain then. So it's really kind of a different way to look at writing and trying scientific ways that people take in information. It was fascinating because he talks to about reading words on a page versus listening. And he's like, yes, different parts of the brain are engaged for those things. But when it comes to meaning, it's in the same place in the brain. Hmm. So like you're making meaning, whether you're reading or listening. And that comes from the same spot in the brain, which I thought was an interesting point. Because I know some people still feel kind of bad, like, well, listening is not necessarily reading. When here at Book Cougars, (laughs) we firmly believe it's reading. Yes. And I think a lot of people 
don't have that question anymore, but it still comes up. I don't know if it's just clickbait articles at this point yeah. that are trying to stir up controversy over whether or not it's actually reading. But um, it's interesting to think about the brain. Yeah, there's scientific proof that it's both. Mm -hmm. Even <laughs> yeah, even if like physically different parts in the taking in are being lit up. Yeah, it's interesting, though, too, because what we've talked about was when you read and listen at the same time, to me, maybe it just digs a deeper hole of mm. memory, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. So again, that's Writing for Impact, Eight Secrets from Science That Will Fire Up Your Reader's Brains by Bill Burchard, which it's out now. I'm reading a book that's not out now. I needed to start a beach read because I'm longing to be on the beach. And so I started reading Summer Stage by Meg Mitchell Moore. This is out May 23rd. The only other book of hers I've read is The Islanders. And I read an article that said that there are some returning characters that pop up in this book, Summer Stage. And it takes place on Block Island, which is off the coast of Connecticut. So I'm very excited to return to Block Island because I have never been there. I want to go. <laughs> I'm just barely started. I'm reading it as an ebook, and it is a book that is going in chronological order, current day by the months, and started, I think, in May. So I think it's going to go across the summer, which makes sense because it's called Summer Stage. And it's told from multiple points of view. And I think it's going to be a performance of some kind, like a theatrical performance on Block Island. Hmm. Really enjoying it so far. Again, it's called Summer Stage, Meg Mitchell Moore, out May 23rd. We also have a sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Diana Moga, who is a writer and a reserve military officer with a day job. Her debut novel, The Peak Experiment, is loosely inspired by her personal experiences. Carla Castillo is a senior cadet at the Unified Military Academy, where she and her fellow cadets are dropped into a 100-acre training forest during their final exercise, and cadets start to die. Determined to find out what went wrong, Carla plunges into the depths of a government conspiracy. She ultimately learns that ethics are not always black and white, and there's more to being a soldier than doing what she's told. It's available now in paperback and ebook. Check the show notes for links. So Emily, what have you just read? I finished reading Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. We have a little theme going on about <laughs> learning to write, apparently, and what writing does for people. I'm also listening to it on audio. I finished it, um, you know, the 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 paperback copy, but I thought I'm going to get the audio. You ta had talked about it on a previous episode. Natalie Goldberg narrates the audio and she has comments at the end of each chapter, which are really fun. Yeah. So I'm enjoying the audio as well, but I did finish reading the book. This book was originally published in 1986. The audiobook with her comments was published in 2008. And one of the things I appreciated was she explained the title writing down the bones as the essential awake speech of one's mind, which I thought was an mm. interesting way to say it. And part of what made this book so popular back in the eighties is she was weaving in this, the ideas of Zen meditation along with writing principles. And that had never really been done before. And I really appreciated that part of the exercise 
trying to open up my creative brain and take a walk on the wild side, I tried something different, which is I wrote all over this book, which to me has always been gasp inducing when I open a book and see it. Not for school, you know, like I highlighted in books in school, but I rarely wrote in them. So I tried it and I survived. So here I am to tell the story. She has some timed exercises, which I want to go back and do. I didn't do any of them while I was reading it. But some of them I translated today when I did my first set of morning pages for the artist way. One of her things is when you're writing, keep your hand moving, get like a super comfortable to you pen and just keep your hand and your pen to the paper. Don't cross things out. Don't worry about spelling and punctuation and grammar. Lose control. Don't think, don't get logical, and then go for the jugular. If something comes up in your writing that's scary or naked, dive right into it. It probably has lots of energy. (laughs) So I love that. And I wanted to read one thing that I've never understood why when I'm really writing, like trying to do a deep dive on something for work, I, I sometimes have to go to a noisy place. And she says, oddly enough, writing in a cafe can work too to improve concentration. But instead of reducing stimulation, the cafe atmosphere keeps that sensory part of you busy and happy so that the deeper, quieter part of you that creates and concentrates is free to do so. Hmm. I've never really understood, like, why do I need to be in a busy Panera (laughs) to, like, get this writing assignment done? So I thought that was really interesting. I just highly recommend it. I feel like it stands up. In her comments on the audio, she says funny things like, wow, I'm talking about typewriters in that chapter, you know, <laughs> right. or I don't know what I was thinking. Or, yeah. I don't think that anymore. Yeah. She said at least once. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't like it was anything detrimental or something. If you do do it in the book, if you get an older edition. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love her voice. Oh, it's great. It's very familiar and wonderful. So yeah. again, this is called writing down the bones, freeing the writer within by Natalie Goldberg. Nice. You know, people like one of the women in my writing group, we do timed writing with each other. And if she gets stuck, she'll just write the last word over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. Like she literally keeps her hand moving. She does not stop writing. Interesting. At all. Yeah. And I do think there's something to be said for pen to paper and not fingertips on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. I'm with you there. So I finished the audio book. Why am I so anxious? Powerful Tools for Recognizing Anxiety and Restoring Your Peace by Dr. Tracy Marks. And this is out now. It is nine hours and 52 minutes. I seriously enjoyed it. She breaks it into two parts. It's hard to tell since it's audio. I think this is a book I would like to have a physical copy of because she does say lists of things, which I kind of zoned out on that. And looking back, to use it as a resource, it would be good to have a physical copy, obviously. But she breaks it into what is anxiety? What is it? How does it manifest? What are some of the different ways it manifests? Because some people I don't think know that they do have anxiety. And other people may not understand how it's expressed by their body and mind. And then the second part are tools on how to deal with it, how to manage it. And you had asked me on the last episode if she talks about counting backwards. And it was really funny because it was just, I don't know if it was just later that day or the next morning, 
she starts talking about that. I was like, damn, Emily just asked about that. So um, I remembered to make a note to talk about that. She didn't say specifically the number counting backwards, but she did say things like to say the months of the year backward. Ooh, that and sounds things, hard. You know, <laughs> things yeah. like that. So she had some strategies like mm -hmm. that. But one of the great points she makes about the tools that you have like that to use is that you need to practice them. Practice them daily and regularly so that when you need them, they're second nature. And I thought, that is so good because it's just like playing sports, right? You practice, practice, practice so that during a game, you don't have to think about techniques. You just do them. And I thought with mental health, that is such a great way to look at the tools that we have. Instead of you're all of a sudden in crisis mode and it's like, where's that list of things that I can do? And then you try and do them and you just get frustrated and you think it doesn't work at all as opposed to having them at your fingertips. Yeah. And yeah. maybe by practicing them, it helps maybe ward things off. Yeah. And well. or it feels very natural to just step into doing something like that, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in a moment of crisis. Right. Yeah. Because you've practiced. Totally. Right. And yeah. then reading books like this with whatever condition you may have, I think part of continuing to study your condition, your disease, however you refer to it, is it helps you be more mindful of it to understand when you might be ramping up mm -hmm. and you might need to start doing some steps to help catch yourself. Right. And to tell the people around you so they know too, to say, hey, let's all do the months backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Just to really see it. Because I think sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. Yeah. Right. The people around you can help. Yeah. One of the things Laura and I just did was we memorized the phonetic alphabet mm. or military alphabet, you know, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. Mm. So that's been fun. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. If anxiety is something you're interested in or struggling with, or you know someone who you maybe would like to support, this is a good book. I do plan on tracking down a physical copy as well. This is the audio of why Am I So Anxious? Powerful Tools for Recognizing Anxiety and Restoring Your Peace by Dr. Tracy Marks. And she's also on YouTube. She makes mental health videos. So check her out there as well. Yeah. And I put that in the show notes for episode 178. I'll do it again for 179 so you can figure out how to find her. I finished my dearest darling Letters of Love in Wartime by Lisa Franco. She's a local Connecticut author and these are love letters written between U.S. Naval Officer Donald Story and his sweetheart, Marjorie, who goes by, or went, I should say, sadly, she passed away, by Marty, between the years 1941 and 1947. The letters cover their budding romance, their engagement, their early years of marriage, and the birth of their first daughter. The wife, Marty, is living in Mount Vernon, New York with her parents, and he's traveling throughout the war, going to all manner of places. He was in the Navy, so traveling all over. And there are 135 letters in the book and some pictures. And Lisa Franco really documents history, the history of that time period. And I learned a lot of interesting facts. And one of them, Chris, I wanted to read to you to see if you knew about this. And the reason the book is called My Dearest Darling is because that is the way he started every letter. So this letter is dated February 1st, 1944. My dearest darling, just finished writing you a V-mail, as I think that is the fastest means of correspondence. 
However, I don't like the damn stuff as I feel too exposed. There's a possibility of sending mail within the next few days, and I really hope I can do. I know you must be wondering what has happened to me, but I really am okay. Just haven't run across a mailman lately. And that V mail is asterisked. And then at the end of the letter, the asterisk is, and this is from Lisa Franco. It's like a form of a footnote. V-Mail was a standardized mail service created by the U.S. government to help speed up delivery of the volumes of letters that were being sent back and forth. Reduced to microfilm to save space, the contents of the letters were blown up again before reaching their destination. Some servicemen, including Donald, distrusted it. Very cool. Had you ever heard of that? I had not. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I heard of microfilm being used during that time period for spy stuff, but that's cool. Yeah. And I was reading this. We had a really rainy weekend, kind of cold, rainy weekend, and I read the book the whole weekend, and the gentleman caller was sitting next to me, and he was saying, you know, I wonder how much of these letters were redacted Mm -hmm. as they were sent And most of the letters, I think there was just one maybe from Marty to him, most of the letters, this bundle of letters that Lisa Franco found in a vintage shop were his letters to Marty. It was really sweet. Nice. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And then the very end of the book is kind of her summation of having met the family and learned a little bit more about what happened with them. And they did stay together and were married over 60 years. Sadly, both of them have passed away. The last 20 some odd years of their life were spent on Cape Cod, happily retired. And that's where Lisa found this bundle of letters in a vintage shop that was accidentally in an estate sale ended up being given away. And so the family was so thrilled to get them back. That's so cool. Yeah. 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 So it's out now. It's a very sweet book. It's called My Dearest Darling, Letters of Love in Wartime by Lisa Franco. Well, one of the books I read for my research project is Book Selling in America and the World, Some Observations and Recollections. And this is a book um, edited by Charles B. Anderson in celebration of the 75th anniversary of the American Booksellers Association. So this book came out in 1975. I purchased a copy off of a book and I got it mainly because the starting essay is A Brief History of American Bookselling by John Tebble, and that was a really helpful essay for my project. But then there's also a piece by Sylvia Beach, who owned Shakespeare and Company, a very influential bookstore in Paris. And just some other really interesting information in here. Christopher Morley, he kind of wrapped things up a little bit at the end, a very short piece. But what was most interesting to me is... The project I'm working on is about the Sunwise Turn bookstore in New York that was run by Madge Jennison and Mary Marbury Clark. And Madge Jennison, there's a quote by her at the beginning of this book. It is, if people get to believe that you know about books, you will sell books all right. (laughs) (laughs) And then it ends with a quote from her, which I think is so fascinating. Our theory was that people are baffled by libraries. When you are confronted by 20,000 books, you will read nothing. But if you have at hand 15, which you feel to be the best current material on any subject important to you, you will read them all. The whole pattern of democracy seems to have become too large. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it also seems like kind of about choice. I was just 
listening to something recently that talked about if you are given too many choices, you can't choose. Mm -hmm. But if to have, that's why we all love these beautiful curated bookstores, right? It's like they've winnowed our choices down in a way to make it easier to see what's right. available. Yeah. And just even the, the one listener who wrote that she has the books that she has read in a closet. Yeah. And it's just the TBR that are out there looking at her. Right. Yeah. So this is a really helpful, interesting book. You know, one thing I have learned during this project and the whole class, the history of the book is that booksellers have been kind of complaining and talking about the same thing forever. <laughs> so one thing that's been highlighted, too, is the conflict between publishers and booksellers, which you hear about that in the news. I've experienced it some when I was a bookseller, the tension, but just how we all do need each other. Book publishers need distribution channels. And so if they don't work with bookstores and booksellers, they're harming themselves. And I think that's really come to the fore during the whole fear of Amazon thing. And then everybody realized, yeah, you still need hand selling brick and mortar bookstores. And then I think the pandemic really made that clear because mm -hmm. bookstores really stood up. Bookstores became these essential bastions, handing books to people through little holes in the wall, <laughs> right. and, you know, keeping people reading. Yeah. And having pick up things and, you know, having your book in a little plastic bag waiting for you out front or right. usually paper bag. And virtual events, which saved all yes, of us. So, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because this book around the turn of the century, late 1890s, early 1900s, there were hardly any bookstores. There were few I mean, still like a thousand, but not that many in the country. And a lot of that had to do with direct mailing, the rise of department stores carrying books, and then the sellers, uh, the traveling salesmen, as we read in Parnassus, Parnassus on, on Wheels. wheels. Yeah. There was a resurgence in bookstores, and Sunrise Turn was at the forefront of that. So that was interesting. And then there's the crisis with the big box retailers and then Amazon and everybody was lamenting the loss of the independent bookstores. But now, as you were just speaking to, there's been a big resurgence of independent bookstores. Yay! Total yay. But also sadness. Speaking of Amazon, they just announced their closing book depository, mm. which has been a great resource. Speaking for myself personally, it was a great way to get books from the UK or Australia that haven't been published here yet in the States. And they had free shipping everywhere too. So it was great to send people books anywhere in the world. And I'm embarrassed to say I didn't realize that was an Amazon thing. Yeah, it was. They oh, bought okay. it years ago when they were snapping up all of the good book stuff in the mm. world. Um, they bought it. And I think it was 2011 that they purchased it. And it was started by a former Amazon employee. Oh, interesting. But, you know, it was independent. So they're closing it, and it's really sad. It's going to be a big loss for a lot of people. Maybe somebody else will snap up the business and do something with it. Who knows? Dare yeah. to dream. Yeah, well, if they're just shuttering it, who knows? I mean, I also wonder, too, like bookshop.org, did that impact things? I mean, I know you do pay for shipping with bookshop.org, mm -hmm. so... And that's one thing about the book industry. It's constantly changing. Yeah. And there's never been like this golden age. It's funny to read something by someone written in, say, like, you know, 1912, talking about the good old days in 1880, when the people in 1880 were complaining about the state of the bookshop. And yeah, so, yeah, humans. <laughs> yes, that's humans. Right. Yeah. So again, that was 
book selling in America and the world, some observations and recollections edited by Charles B. Anderson. Well, I finally gave in and went to my bookshelf and picked up The Logger Queen of Minnesota by J. Ryan Straddle. I talked about my love of his upcoming novel that's coming out in just a couple of weeks, April 18th, Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. So his books are in order, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, The Logger Queen of Minnesota, Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club coming out in April. This book was so fun and so sweet. I'm so glad I didn't wait any longer. (laughs) All of his books take place in the Midwest, in Minnesota, very Midwestern. This one in particular was in farm country and very engrossed, as the title suggests, in the world of beer and beer making, which I am not a beer drinker. I'm not enamored of any of that. And it didn't matter. The book was still lovely. At the heart of it are these two estranged sisters, Helen and Edith, they're estranged partly because their family farm sold and the share of the sale was not evenly distributed. Yep. The sisters are very different personalities. The things that drive them are very different. One of them is seeking to become a businesswoman and make the best beer that she can. She's really into chemistry, like making beer is a chemical activity, you know, Mm -hmm. and she got really into it in high school and pursued it in college. And the other is a pie maker and starts a family. She doesn't drink. One is rigid. One is very soft. One has achieved this great financial success and one is living paycheck to paycheck. It's not in current day. It takes place in the early 2000s, maybe dips back into the 80s. I'm sorry, I don't remember that. So it's a slightly different time before beer really took off, like those micro brew houses and all of that. It's the cusp of that and during that time. I don't want to spoil anything because the book really surprised me in a lot of ways. I will say one of the themes I loved is that it's one of those, it's never too late to achieve your dreams or to be surprised what life will bring your way, which you and I talk about, like middle age and into your 80s can really be filled with fun and surprises. And this book does not disappoint. Mm. I also think it's interesting that he writes from a female perspective, and he does it really well. If I got the chance to talk to him, I'd ask him about that. Um, So themes of the book are pride, trying to make it on your own, being a woman in the world of brew making, which is no joke, Midwestern values, family strife, testament to older women not giving up and kind of the chapters of a person's life. I felt like he really went through that in this book. And it was fun because each chapter is um, the title is a dollar amount. And that dollar amount becomes very important to what happens in the chapter. And the dollar amounts are from $5 up to over $1 million. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they're very different. Really great novel, The Logger Queen of Minnesota, J. Ryan Straddle. Very cool. It has a great cover. Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's very Midwestern. You know, the cover's Midwestern. The reading of it's Midwestern. <laughs> I think you'd really enjoy him, Chris. My cousin Tommy is a chemist, and he makes his own beer. And I never put those two together. Yeah, it's very much a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're fermenting things and making gases and you know all sorts yeah. of stuff. So cool. <laughs> hmm. Very cool. 
Well, we had a great buddy read for our buddy Colleen's birthday book club, which we highly recommend people pursue that as a birthday celebration. Right? Yeah. So Colleen started this a couple years ago. It was during the pandemic and she was cooped up in her house alone and thought for her birthday, she wanted to do something with friends. And so she invited people to do a buddy read with her and then have a Zoom conversation. So this year she chose a great one. So many excited middle-aged women um, were revisiting Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Originally published in 1970. And I was reading my original (laughs) copy, which I love. It's my favorite color, purple. Really great. I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting it. I had it with me when I went to New York, and I realized I forgot my reading glasses, which, you know, I could read with my regular glasses. It's just not comfortable at all. So once again, audiobooks came to my rescue because I looked at the audiobook. It's just under four hours. And I thought, oh, man, I could like listen to that in a day as I sit here on the train. So that's what I did. And it's narrated by Laura Hamilton. And I thought she did a great job with the young sounding voice and then distinguishing the adult characters. She did a great job. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think overarchingly, I would say everybody there at the Zoom book club talked about how one of the themes of this book is religion. And we didn't remember that. I mean, it's a huge part of the book. It is a huge part. Like it's the structure of the book too, practically about religion and this young girl talks to God. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Like there's a reason that's the title. She's always (laughs) talking to God. But there's this tension between Judaism and Christianity within her family. And she's writing a report for a teacher. Right. I had no memory of that. For me, it was all about the period. Yeah. And just your body and your friends and what you were wearing and having to get your first bra and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Not like the God stuff, whatever, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe I don't remember that because I wasn't tormented by religion as a child. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't an issue for me. There wasn't mystery around it. Right. I think part of why there's mystery around it for Margaret is because, Her mother is Christian, her father is Jewish, her mother's family kind of disavows her her daughter and has never met her granddaughter. And so there's this mystery. And probably when things like that happen in a family, lots of times it's not spoken. But as we know, kids read between the tension, you know, so and create their own ways of handling it. And Margaret's way is to be asking God these questions, this God that she doesn't quite understand. Yeah. And there's pressure on her. Whereas I feel like I didn't have that. We had friends of different faiths and stuff. So I didn't really hope. But yeah, wanting to know what it was like to get your first period. I was all about yeah, that. Yeah, 100%. What <laughs> is w- awaiting me? Yes. And I also didn't remember her lovely grandmother, who she's very close to. I thought it was hilarious that her grandmother, she seems so old, but she's 60. <laughs> So that gave me a good chuckle. I mean, the first thing I wrote down is the grandma is 60, you know, lots of different things. We also talked about how the mother is an artist and the dad kind of poo-poos her art and says, like, I think her paintings are up in the attic or something. Right. Yeah. Like he really just doesn't sound very supportive. There's a movie coming out. Yeah. So I'm really curious about how everyone's going to be portrayed because I think the dad is one of those characters. It could go a lot of different directions. He could be made to be a comedic character or 
a villain almost right. in some cases or updated you know or like updated is it, a, if it's going to be current day because i feel like in the novel he was a man of his time mm-hmm. and re- very much portrayed that way yeah playboys laying around the house yeah but he he also seems supportive to margaret to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. so i mean he could be like you're saying be updated to be the the hip right helpful dad who just can't mow the lawn without cutting his hand off right. <laughs> But takes her bra shopping. Maybe he'll be the one that goes. (laughs) Ooh, I can't wait to find out how they do that. I know. That's going to be an upcoming Biblio adventure. Yes. I also wanted to read, there was this one part, you know, being that I'm a divorcee, there was one part that kind of cracked me up. They're talking about her aunt. Janie is one of Margaret's friends. And she says, my aunt went to a nudist colony last summer. No kidding. Nancy looked up. She stayed a month, Janie told us. My mother didn't talk to her for three weeks after that. She thought it was a disgrace. My aunt's divorced. <laughs> like that divorced renegade going to a nudist colony. That just cracked me up. Lots of people are divorced now, sadly. Yeah. There were also things like there's a scene where they're eating cut up hot dogs and beans. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a go to dinner for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then pads and belts. That's the other thing I wonder yeah. if they'll update in the movie. Right. Kids of this generation wouldn't even know what a pad and a belt is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd know what a pad is, but not the belts and the big old, the pads that were like three inches. Oh, I know. Thick, right. You, know? you felt like you were riding a horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I remember when I got my period, my, my sister's five years older than I am and she didn't have pads. And I was just like, uh, I couldn't handle the other option, you know. And my dad went to the store and bought me pads. See, your dad is definitely an upgraded version of the dad in the book. Yeah, he totally was. He was great about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you to Colleen for giving us the opportunity to revisit this wonderful book. Yes. And to read it from, you know, the adult perspective. Mm -hmm. So different. Absolutely. And I think Colleen said she wasn't sure if she's going to be doing this again next year but i think everyone on the call was kind of like well please do yeah because you know now it's a tradition so it's not an option colleen yeah no pressure no all the pressure (laughs) (laughs) well chris did you go on any biblio adventures i did i did make it to new york city to meet my friend deanna who i'd never met in person before so it was great to connect with her We had a wonderful meal together and then walked over to the New York Public Library and checked out their treasures exhibit, which is amazing. They have literary treasures from a vast variety of time periods and cultures and types of people. They have the stuffed animals from like Winnie the Pooh and Charles Dickens' desk enclosed in glass. Because you know, even if you had a sign that said, do not touch, there'd be people unnamed who would stand there and try and at least put a finger on it you know <laughs> let me get a little connect with charlie there charles dickens energy yeah so that was really cool and then we went our separate ways and i walked over to rockefeller center to see the new mcnally jackson store which is fantastic oh such oh, green eyed envy it's amazing i can't wait to go with you it's so well curated like all of their stores and They have a fantastic sidelines selection, which is stationary focused with this whole wall of pens and some pencils and lots of tables with notebooks and could just spend 
a long time just in that section alone. So I did a quick walk throughout the whole store. It's like two and a half floors. It's hard to tell because you go upstairs here and there. And then there is a central staircase that takes you up to the second floor. And even in there, there's a little bit of level differences and stuff. But one thing I love, and I was so happy to see it there, they also have the sections broken out by country. Yes. You know, translated fiction, nonfiction from countries. I've never seen another bookstore do that. Except for their other bookstore. Right, their other locations. So, you know, you have Australian, Spain. I mean, I was just so excited to be there and browsing You know, I'm not really sure what time I got there. It might have been a little bit after two, and it wasn't very crowded. And I think I maybe spent an hour in there because I did need to catch the train home. By the time I was leaving, it was getting pretty busy. I cannot wait to go. Yeah. And I wasn't planning on buying anything. Of course. But um, (laughs) they had one deck left of Riding Down the Bones deck, 60 Cards to Free the Rider Within by Natalie Goldberg synchronicity totally so this is so cool and i had heard about this deck because it's been out for a couple years now but it's just as the title says 60 cards with writing prompts i love it yeah i picked that up i couldn't resist well we also had a great biblio adventure last friday we got in the car and drove to boston to go to simmons university yeah we spent the day working at the beatley library there on campus which just opened in late fall last year. They had a significant renovation. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was really a fantastic place to work. They have tons of tables available in well-lit areas. Even downstairs, they tried to do their best with windows and natural light coming in. Yeah, the room we had worked in half of the day just had a line of windows. It was so nice. They have study rooms that you can reserve. So we started the day in a room like that and then went and had lunch at the student center and then went back and just did some browsing in the stacks. Yeah, it was really great. A great day. And we got a really nice dinner where we ate some tater tots in honor of Jenna Miller. Her book, Out of Character. Then we went to Brookline Brooksmiths. Yes. I'm so happy we did that. Yeah. I I mean, it's a bookstore I've heard nothing but amazing things about. And wow, yeah. Yeah, they host a lot of book events, which is probably how I mostly hear their name. And it was late. I mean, we were tired. It was late in the day. And we decided to just go. And that bookstore is insane. At one point, we both looked at each other and were like, we would move to this neighborhood <laughs> just to be able to come to this bookstore and have it be our neighborhood oh, store. Yeah. I mean, it's it's huge for one. I don't know what the square footage is, but it is huge. The first floor is all new, and it's a very long store. So it's narrow. And when you first walk in, if you're just browsing the front tables, and all of a sudden you look up and you look back, you're like, holy beep. Well, I mean, even from the front, like when you're standing on the sidewalk and you look at the front of the store, you just think, oh, it's going to be a little store. It Mm -hmm. does not appear big from the outside. Right. You think it's just going to be a little square storefront, but really long. And then off to the left from when you first walk in is a huge sideline area. But you don't see it. Like you get halfway deep into the store and I turned my head and it was like rows of tea and chocolate and housewares and candles and beautiful yeah pouches and cards oh my god yeah unbelievable totally great and they sell you know treats and cold beverages which is nice 
And then downstairs, it's all used, very well curated and organized used books. And you picked up a couple things there, didn't you? I did. One book I couldn't pass up. It's called A Small Book of Grave Humor, edited by Fritz Spiegel. And this book, it's so funny. I mean, it's just, I love cemeteries for one. So Laura and I love to go and just wander around and look at headstones. And these are, I think, mainly all from the UK. It's a UK book, came out in 1971, but it's shaped like a headstone. It's hilarious. Just this tiny little thing. Let me read you here. Like this is, I guess this is the second entry. In memory of Mrs. Lydia Barnett, consort of Noah Ripley, Esquire, by whom she had eight sons and 11 daughters, 17 of whom lived to have families. Her descendants at the time of her decease were 97 grandchildren and 106 great-grandchildren. She died June 17, 1816, at age 91. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou hast excelled. <laughs> that is what is written on her headstone. Oh and, and some of them are just kind of, I mean, this is extraordinary, and that she lived to 91 is amazing. And others are just maybe poorly written, like unintentionally saying things that they didn't mean. Right. Um, and then the other book is The Crystal Frontier by Carlos Fuentes, who's a Mexican novelist. And I don't see very many of his novels in bookstores, at least around these parts, you know, so I grabbed it. It was raining when we pulled up near the bookstore. We had to drive around the block a couple times to find a place to park. When we were coming back from the bookstore, we were like, oh, look, we parked in front of a public library. And we didn't even <laughs> realize it at the time because we were so like, oh, my God, we found a parking space and let's get to the bookstore. Yeah, we had bookstore on the brain. Yeah, but we decided we'll come back sometime and work at that public library Mainly so we can go to the bookstore. We yes. have to build a work day around it. Uh, We're going to you know. do that. We're going to keep yeah. our eye out for their events. Yeah. And and do that one day. And oh my gosh, it was a long day. We left at 7, 7 in the morning and we got home at like 11 at night. Yeah. I did not get out of bed until 10 the next morning, which is <laughs> for those of you who know me, I get out of bed at about 5 to 6 a.m. every morning, but I was tired. Yeah. That was a great day. It was so good. So much fun. So upcoming jaunts. I have a very exciting upcoming jaunt that I want to tell you all about. April 28th through 30th is the Newburyport Literary Festival, which is one of my favorite festivals that takes place here in New England. It's in Massachusetts. And they have been virtual since the pandemic started in 2020. But they are hybrid this year. They're going to do Friday and Saturday, the 28th and 29th. In Newburyport, it's all over town at different locations. And then the 30th, they're doing virtual. And there are some great events virtually also, including our buddy Amy Tector, amongst many other buddies that you'll see if you go to the schedule. So exciting. And they have fabulous moderators, too. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Wow, she's good. I am going to be moderating a couple sessions. Thank you, Chris. I'm (laughs) blushing. Sadly, my buddy can't be there because she's got her final stretch of school, but hopefully next year we'll do this together. So I'm moderating two sessions on Saturday, April 29th. Please come see me. Everything is free. My first session is called Fur, Feathers, and Scales, A Lifetime of Caring for Pets. And this is a book by Dr. Karen Fine 
called The Other Family Doctor, a veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. The first thing that Dr. Karen Fine and I are going to figure out is if we're related. <laughs> so <laughs> I've started it, um, both reading it and the audiobook she narrates. It's a really fun memoir about her life as a veterinarian. Mm. Highly recommend this book. It's available now. I think it hit the New York Times bestseller list. Go Dr. Fine. The other session I'm moderating is at three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's called Shaped by Loss, How Tragedy Changed the Lives of Emerson, Thoreau, and William James. And this is with the author Megan Marshall, who is known to us because she's a biographer. She wrote the book, The Peabody Sisters, which took her 20 years to write. It was nominated for a Pulitzer. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. She's done a lot of great things. The other book she's written is called A Miracle for Breakfast, which is about Elizabeth Bishop. And it's based on a poem that she wrote, which I was really hoping to read for National Poetry Month. We'll see if I get to it. The main book that I'm going to be talking to her about is this book called Three Roads Back that was written by Robert Richardson, who sadly has passed away. Someone that was very dear to Megan Marshall. She wrote the foreword for this book. And I'm really interested to talk to her about grief and how grief affects an author's writing. So we'll be in conversation at three o'clock on April 29th. Come, come to the Newburyport Festival. If you can't be there, I would highly recommend that you check out their schedule for the 30th, because there are some really great events, including Jay Ryan Straddle's going to be there on a Zoom. When I saw his name, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to handle myself. But then I saw it was virtual. So lucky for him. <laughs> but our friend Chris Coleander is going to moderate that session. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, I'm so bummed I can't be there, mainly because I thought I'd be able to go this year. I've never attended this festival I'm sad I'm going to miss you moderating these great events. And Megan Marshall is such a hero, such a fantastic biographer. Yeah, it's going to be fun to talk to her. I'm I'm super excited, slightly intimidated, super excited. Totally. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. And so this whole festival takes place in Newburyport. And you go from these really cool venues, you know, from venue to venue. It's slightly stressful because you can't see everything, which is always hard for me. Like, how do you decide? But I encourage everyone to come and or go to the Zoom events on Sunday. Yeah. And if you have questions about these authors and their books, shoot us an email and Emily can incorporate that into her conversation. A hundred percent. And or if you're going to be there, let me know. And then you can be sure to ask questions from the audience. Yeah. Because <laughs> we love people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can have coffee with a cougar. That's right. <laughs> and maybe even the gentleman caller. <laughs> And then the other thing is the National Willa Cather Center has a bunch of events this year. I've mentioned in a past episode that it's the 150th anniversary of Willa Cather. So they have a lot of great events. And one I wanted to shout out, they have their conferences. They have the regular spring conference in Red Cloud, Nebraska. And then the international conference is in New York City this summer. Both of those are in June. This is a virtual study series with an author named Benjamin Taylor. For, uh, it's, it's four different events. They do charge $20 per event, or you can get a rate if you sign up for all four. 
But he's going to be talking about different novels that Cather wrote. Uh, My Antonia, A Lost Lady, The Professor's House, and Death Comes for the Archbishop. And these events are in April, June, September, and October, all leading up to the publication of his new book, which is called Chasing Bright Medusa, A Life of Willa Cather, that is coming out in the fall. And it's a short look at her life, I think coming from like the writer perspective and her character and things like that. I'm really curious now to read more from Benjamin Taylor. I was looking at some of the other books he published and he sounds really fascinating. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to reading Chasing Bright Medusas as well. Yeah, that's a great title. Isn't it? Yeah. So do you have any upcoming reads? You know what? The only thing I need to get going on is Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, because in two weeks we have the Vintage Book Club meeting coming up. So I don't want to be waiting to be finishing it the night before because that's never pleasant. (laughs) Yeah. And I checked out the audiobook and it's narrated by the actor Gary Sinise. So I'm going to probably be doing both Mm -hmm. for sure. That's on my assignment list, too. I have this book, Three Roads Back by Robert Richardson in preparation for my conversation with Megan Marshall. The other family doctor, a veterinarian, explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality by Karen Fine. I think it's interesting that she didn't put doctor. I guess it says doctor of DVM Mm. is what they do. Got it. Doctor of veterinary medicine. You know, it's really interesting when people don't do that because Tracy Marks doesn't say doctor either. Mm. I don't know. I don't want to sound like an intellectual snob, but... Does the doctor sometimes turn people off if they think it's going to be too brainy or technical or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I work for someone who's a doctor. He's a PhD and he never wants to be referred to that way. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just how you kind of perceive yourself. You know, that would be a good question to ask her. Like, how much choice did she have? I wonder sometimes Mm -hmm. if publishers say, like, you'd be better off not having it in this case. Yeah, Interesting. Chris comes up with my first question, of course. (laughs) Well, I also have a book that is way far away, but I'm so excited when I saw it that I have to mention it, which is I love the Best American series of all sorts of things. And the Best American Short Stories comes out on October 17th, and it's edited by Min Jin Lee. Mm. So already pre-ordered. Yes. Very excited. (laughs) In the Out Now category, author Mike Branch, who was our guest on episode 150, talking about On the Trail of the Jackalope, how a legend captured the world's imagination and helped us cure cancer. That book is coming out in paperback. April 11th. And we both enjoyed that one so much. I think coming out in April is a good time for Easter. Yeah, one bunnies, right? Uh, Jackalopes or a type of bunny rabbit. But I think it's going to be a great summer read because it's kind of like a little bit of a travel narrative road trip type book as well. Such a good book. I loved that book. Also out now is Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwane Ajay Brenya. This is a book that when we did our top 10s, and then talked about what we were looking forward to this year. This is one I mentioned. I still haven't gotten to it. However, Russell got to it and gave it all the stars and said it's probably going to be one of his favorites of the year. Mm. So there you have it. And then You Could Make This Place Beautiful, the memoir by Maggie Smith. So good. Get your hands on that book. We're so excited to welcome back author Shuli Kaywood. She is joining us today to celebrate National Poetry Month. Shuli has been on the podcast several times before. 
on episode 22, 64, 100, and 125. We've talked with her about her short story collection, about her memoir, about her poetry collection. She has a new poetry collection coming out in late August, I believe is when it comes out. And so she's here today to give us a sneak peek at one of the poems called Starter Marriage. We're going to do a deep dive. The full poem is available in the show notes under episode 179 at bookcougars.com. So Shuli's going to read it out loud, but you can follow along by reading off the show notes or go and read it after you listen to our discussion. Enjoy our conversation with Shuli. We thought it'd be really fun to invite a poet on and to really dig into a poem for National Poetry Month. Because we know a lot of people like to read poems, but really digging into a poem is not something people do on a regular basis. You know, when you're not in school, it's a little bit harder, maybe more of a challenge. So welcome, Shuli. Well, it's good to be on. Thanks for having me, having me back. I'm so excited. Yes. And I, lo- I love National Poetry Month. I'm always happy to celebrate it in any way I can. So I'm thrilled to be here. It is your month. We're glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Well, and speaking about being back again, we recently had our mystery man, John Valeri, on the podcast on episode 175. And there was a little, just a tiny bit of smack talk about who's been on the pad, podcast oh. more often. than. Oh, I heard it. Oh, yeah. oh, I heard it. I heard it, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he got an email after I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they've been smacking down via email without us. But he happened to call in on the Book Cougar's cat phone and left a message for you. We'd like to play it. Okay. Hello, Book Cougars. It is your mystery man and most frequent guest, John Valeri, and I am calling in today because I heard through the grapevine that you are having the great Shuli Kaywood on your show again. And that leads me to two questions, one specific to the Book Cougars and then one for Shuli. And my first question is simply this. If you broadcast my voice on the podcast episode, does that count as an appearance? Because if it does, then that neutralizes Shuli's appearance, and that makes me feel very, very good. And my second question, this one is for Shuli, and it's actually in all sincerity and seriousness because I admire you greatly, Shuli, not only for your talent, but for your humanity. And so my question for you is this. In terms of working with words, you know, in poetry, I'm wondering if you can tell us how you find that works better for you in sort of working through feelings and emotions versus maybe some other means of communication. Because I often find as well that I don't really know truly what I think about something until I put it down on paper. And so I'm wondering what that process is like for you. All right. Thank you so much for indulging my questions and my very best to all of you. Well, I like that. A sincere question, a wonderful compliment, but preceded by... A SmackDown comment. <laughs> John, I see you. <laughs> I am at, I'm gonna answer for the book cougars. This is this is, does not count as him being on. <laughs> I get this one, John. <laughs> nice try, John. Um to answer his question though, I love the question. I, I find that I really 
do work out a lot of how I feel about something on paper. And I often don't know what I'm feeling until I write about it. I have a practice of writing every day and um, a lot of stuff comes up during that time when I'm writing that I is sometimes unexpected. Sometimes it's very expected. I've been writing a lot of theme pieces on things I've been thinking about lately. But um, yeah, I, I definitely have things come through on paper that surprise me, which is always interesting to figure things out. Thanks for the question, John. You know, we yeah, thought we'd let you. him take the first question since he's so good at it. Yes, yes, <laughs> he is. He is he a is, pro. He is very, very good yes. at asking questions. Yeah. So, Shirley, when you come to Connecticut, we feel like we're going to have to set up a like an arm wrestling match or something between you and John. Yeah, something. I'm going to start <laughs> pumping iron so I can win it. Maybe, maybe we just have to be nerdy and do like a write-off or something, you know, like... <laughs> Oh, like a poet. Wait, we could do like a poetry slam, slam between yeah. the two of them. We yeah. can go longer. Okay, go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right. So we are here today to talk about your poem, Starter Marriage. So Shuli, tell us the first time this poem was published. It was published in an online journal under the title, But First. In your collection, it's going to be published with the title Starter Marriage. Can you talk about that evolution? Yes. I don't even remember why I came up with the first title, honestly. (laughs) But I've studied titles a lot um, because I teach about titles. So I now have a higher standard for titles of my own. And I like for my titles to do more than just be kind of a placeholder. And so I like for titles to give some information. I think of titles as sort of the doorway into not sort of, I think of them as a doorway into a piece of writing. So for this one, I wanted there to be not just be marriage, but starter marriage so that people know that it is a marriage that is like a first marriage or a marriage that isn't going to last. Well, a first marriage, that's, I'm assuming people know what a starter marriage is. My friends and I used to talk about uh, back (laughs) when we were all divorced Having all having had starter marriages, which I'd never heard the term until then. And so I wanted someone to enter the piece knowing that already, that this is about a marriage that is going to be a first or, you know, is sort of doomed to fail. Um, And so I like to have that. I like for titles to do some work in the piece. Yeah, I like starter marriage a lot. Yeah, I do too. Would you like to read it to us? I would love to read it. So as Emily said, the title is Starter Marriage, and it's written after Erin Adair Hodges and borrowing a line from her poem, Portrait of Mother, 1985. First, there was the word, and the word was trying. Trying the apartment with white walls, popcorn ceilings, footsteps heavy above, thudding over our days. Trying the job I took filing papers into squeaking cabinets, the one you took answering phones for dentists, trying the brown bag lunches with limp sandwiches and sliced cheese, the softening apple, the room temperature soda, consuming it all on church steps, hunched below the overhang as it rained, trying the cold pool after work with dead insects needing to be netted, unraveling towels, TJ Maxx suits, the walk back on the no-car driveway. All heat evaporated, empty stomachs. No one wanted what the other craved. Trying the red Chevrolet with the bad battery, no parking without pay, 
the bus rides to and from work, your stop, my stop, the sun hitting hard, us squinting at the sky, your last day, the blue electric toothbrush they gave you as goodbye, buzzing in your mouth with all those trapped words, trying the new queen mattress we could not afford but bought anyway, trying the laundry we toted to the next building, plastic hampers in our arms full of every day's dirt, coffee but no creamer, bread but no toaster, sugar hardened in the bag, day-old everything bagels, buy one, get one, veggie burritos, dollar theater on Sundays, new job but less pay, new boss but no promotion, saving for tickets for never vacations, trying the places we gave up for each other, city salted by an ocean, all those fish and ferry rides, town with three stoplights, two policemen, a forest to get lost in, your dreams, my dreams, weeds by the parking lot, trying your face, a broken banister, my hands, an unused map. Hmm. Love it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you all. What a treat to have the poet read their poem to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you for letting me read it. Um, And I thought I would start off with the three reasons that I chose this poem that you all asked me to pick a poem of mine for my collection. I chose this for three reasons. The first is that I use a lot of concrete images in this in this poem, which I often do in my writing. And so it's it's very typical that I do that. Um, And I like to use concrete images as a way of showing versus telling someone how to feel about something. And so I think it's really good when I even give my, uh, I run a prompt writing workshop and I often will tell the participants, start with the concrete. Sometimes you don't know what you're writing and to just the concrete grounds the reader, it grounds me as, as the poet. Um, and so that's almost always how I start rather than talking in the abstract. Um, the second reason is that I like poems that tell stories as the kinds of poems that I like to read. And so that's what I tried to do in this poem is to tell a story about a marriage. Um, and then the last reason that I picked it was that I borrowed the first nine words uh, from Erin Adair Hodges from her poem. And the first line of her poem is first it was the word and the word was okay. And so I kept that first, there was the word and the word was, and I replaced it with trying and I went on to write the poem. And I like borrowing ideas, lines, titles from other people. I run a prime writing workshop as I, as I told you all, and I'm often doing that in the workshop, which is like, you know, borrow this from this poet and use it to launch your own piece, whether it's poetry or prose. Um, but I really think that you can learn a lot from other writers. And so I like to, like I said, kind of do it a, a jump off from whatever I'm reading. And so I wanted to pick that for this reason, because I think I do a lot. In my collection of poems, there's a lot of um, lines or titles or ideas that come from other people. And I have it all attributed in that collection. Is that called something specific? Or is that just like a, a thing that poets do? And if you, if you attribute it, that's just that. And you can write any kind of poem. You can write, yes, you can take the same title, you can take a line, uh, you can take if if the writer wrote a certain way, you know, with a certain style that's very distinct, then you can um, just make sure you give credit to that writer. So interesting, because that that first sentence, 
first there was the word and the word was trying. I mean, that it's biblical, you know, in the beginning exactly. was the word and the yeah. word was God. Right. I mean, right. uh, both right. of these poems are really, they set you up for something so monumental and epic, which is what a marriage is and can be. I was really struck by your use of pronouns in the poem. You know, you the, the first, well, the first stanza has R and the second uh, has I and you. And then in between, there's a lot of us and your and my and you. Um, and then the last pronoun is my. Um, and I, so I was just wondering, like, if, if that was a conscious decision to use pronouns that were also genderless mm. in the poem. So it's kind of like a genderless now, uh, poem in some ways. True. It is addressing somebody in the poem. From my point of view, it's a speaker. Um, and this is a very, not all poems have to be true. Um, this one happens to be a very autobiographical poem. But let's just talk in terms of a speaker, because I think that's helpful. The speaker is addressing somebody using the you pronoun. And I think as well, the speaker is having thoughts about what the marriage was like for the speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's very, sure if that answered your question. Yeah, Chris. it totally does. And I mean, because it, it's just very immediate. You know, there's nothing for me that took me out of the poem. Like, oh, I, I felt like, not that I was the you, there was no gender to pull me one way or the other. Mm, <laughs> I good. Mean, you know, I mean, yeah. I tend to have it in my head as a binary, unfortunately, from my generation, probably. Um, but I just really appreciated that because it was so immediate. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was in the poem. I wasn't reading oh, somebody right. else's poem, if you know what I mean. Yes. Oh, I like that. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I'm glad. I didn't think about, you know, so much the genderless part of it, um, but I'm happy that it turned out that way. It feels very almost private, uh, like almost a private conversation that's become public. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And this could be between any two adults. There are three stanzas where there are no pronouns. It's the one that starts coffee, but no creamer, no creamer, bread, bread but no toast. Yeah. And so those three stanzas have no pronouns. And so they really stood out to me as being different. Yes. And for me, I think that if in general, I feel like when I at least when I read poetry, you'll see structure and like a pattern. But if you keep with the pattern, it becomes boring for both the writer and the reader so I don't know that it was a conscious choice, but definitely it would have been on a second or third draft where I wouldn't have wanted to stay with the trying this, trying that, and keeping on with that same, it becomes da-da, da-da, da-da. And so those three standards, they're all very short, but they also don't have that, that trying anymore. They become smaller and more specific, while the others are specific too. Um, so they have a different, it's almost like a different structure, even though they're three-line stanzas. And so... I think that's helpful to not have, and it's a, it's a fairly long poem, at least for me, it's, uh, you know, a little over a page. And so it just can be too redundant if you just keep it for me, if you keep with the same structure. So that changes it. It's a shift. Well, it was also kind of a shift of like, things are really degrading. Like you really right. got the feeling like, okay, this is coming to an end, you know, right, right. really quickly, because you also kind of you get into a 
they're shorter sentences and you go through them faster. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are missing, you know, coffee, but no creamer, bread, but no toaster, new job, but less pay, new boss, but no promotion. So there is a pattern within it, but it's changed from what preceded it and what follows, actually. Yeah, because mm-hmm. what follows picks it up. Then that next stanza after those mm-hmm. three starts with trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very, very interesting. And I felt that way when I was reading it. It was almost like a different shift in the wind, you know, and then it picked back yeah. up again. Well, as I said, those three stanzas are much shorter. And so it also, I think, especially in reading it, I hear that the pace quickens a little bit and then it slows back down. Mm-hmm. And I just think from a teacher's perspective, I think, again, that variation, you don't want your your reader to be bored and have the same thing over and over. So it's like disrupting it in different ways. I, I call it, when I teach, I call it having texture. So having some sort of friction, or texture, change, something to interest the reader. Because like I said, if, if it's all beige, it's not interesting, right? If it's the same sounds, if it's the same length, it becomes tiresome, unless that's what you're going for. And I suppose I could have been in this poem, but <laughs> but I still like to have something that causes a little friction for the reader. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very effective. So let's talk yeah. about trying. We have both taken some of your workshops. And when I read this, I was hearkening back to something you talked about in one of your workshops about um, plant and return. Mm. Would this be the idea of that? Or is that different? Usually plant and return refers to an object that you keep coming back to. Um, I guess it could be an idea. No, I think this is more just like repetition. In the sense of plant and return, it does take on an expansive meaning as you go on with the images, though, primarily. So in that sense, it can be like plant and return. But I think of this just more as it repeats, it, it becomes a mimic of the word. It's like we, we kept on trying, we kept on trying, we kept on trying. By having it repeat, I wanted it to be like seeing two people try and try and try. Mm, got it. Yeah. So talking about the stanzas, we've talked about how there are three line stanzas, but you have one that is four. Mm, I do. That that stood out a little bit too on a subsequent reading. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that decision. Uh, a three line stanza is called a tercet. And a two lines, a couplet, a four lines, a quatrain, you don't really need to know that. But just to say that a lot of times I will write in a form kind of way where it's couplets, 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 or two line stanzas, two line stanzas, or three line stanzas, or four line stanzas. And then I like to often break the pattern. It typically for me happens at the end. And I like to break the pattern if it mimics what I'm trying to say. And, and in that sense, where I chose to break it here. It was a change in the poem for me. Let's, let's, <laughs> I wrote it, but poems are subjective. So, you know, everybody can interpret however they want. That's when you put a poem out into the world, you let other people interpret how they'd like to. What I intended was for that place, it's towards the end where it becomes a four-line stanza. And the, the stanza goes, trying the places we gave up for each other. And then it describes the places, a city and then a town. Um, your dreams, my dreams is how the stanza ends. And I felt like that was a place that was different. Not only did I make it a four line stanza where there's a disruption to the structure, but it's also a place in the poem that for me became 
less about what's happening in the present. When I say present, it's with air quotes for these two people. And it goes back to sort of the backstory. That's the first time we're like, okay, what, what happened before all this? What kind of like, why, why is this marriage called a starter marriage, you know, not going well. And so we see that these two people gave up a lot to be together and that maybe that's part, you know, that backstory is important. They gave up their dreams for each other in some ways and so I wanted that, um, again, it, to, for me, it was a change in the poem. So I wanted that reflected in some way. Yeah, I wrote next to that one, ouch. Um, <laughs> just because, like, I mean, if you were to, to you know, go from the, that first line to then the tale of the, the fourth, I mean, trying the places we gave up for each other, your dreams, my dreams. And, like, you know that this marriage has not been, there wasn't a lot of hope for the marriage, I guess. As you're reading along, you see like things are really grim. That was just really a final punch, a final blow. Yeah, yeah followed by weeds by the parking lot, right? Right, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Which is yes. what can happen to dreams when you uh, let them die, right? Mm-hmm. Right, you don't nurture them, right? Yeah. And you mm-hmm. had different punctuation in that stanza. You used a colon and a semicolon when everywhere else there had been periods and commas. And uh, I was just kind of curious about that as well, about punctuation and poetry and and how much do you fiddle with that? I don't fiddle with it a lot. The reason that I used the colon was I, it says trying the places we gave up for each other. And then there's a colon so that I can show the two different places. And then the semicolon comes between the place that one person gave up, which was a city by the water. And then the other person gave up a town, a small town. And so the semicolon divides them to show these are two different places. I often have trouble in my own poetry with figuring out where commas go because I write a lot of prose. And so I tend to put commas where other poets would say, I'll just take that comma out, especially at the end of a line. And so I have to watch for that. And that's the only thing that I typically will fiddle around a lot with in my own work. I don't usually deal with a lot of semicolons in my poems. This is unusual. (laughs) How do you decide where to break the lines? I personally tried to break a line where it can either, I was going to say it can make sense or not make sense, (laughs) which isn't very helpful. Um, Sometimes there's an end. For example, at the end of the first stanza, it's a description. First, there was a word the word was trying, and it describes the apartment and then the footsteps above thudding over our days. And there's a period. And that's kind of where the thought ends and where the stanza ends. There are other places where you want what is expected. For example, you end a line. I say you don't end it with a period. There's no end. They call it an end stop when you have a, a like a period at the end of the line. And then jamming is when the line goes on to the next line. And so you want it so that when people get to the end of the line, they're thinking that the, that the piece is going to go somewhere and it goes to someplace unexpected. And that's always fun. You, I definitely don't have that in every line, but it's nice to try that to get that. So for example, trying the new queen mattress, right? I'm not sure what's expected, but probably what I hope is not expected is the next line is we could not afford mm. a bot anyway. You know, yeah. that's not, you're, you might be expecting like for a description of the mattress or for it to be like, this is a bed, right? So there you might expect something about love, but the next line is we could not afford, but bought anyway. And so it's nice to break it in a place that the next line is unexpected, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah totally. for sure. Yeah, and you just have such great, I mean, some, I underlined some of the phrases that I really like, like dead insects needing to be netted. 
mm. um, was one that I really like the way that kind of felt on the tongue. Um, yep. Saving tickets for never vacations. Yeah, you underlined one that was my favorite too. Buzzing in your mouth with all those trapped words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one really got me. Yep. What isn't said, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a line I was like, ooh, I'm going to take that line. <laughs> that awesome. Yeah. All right, so next year we'll be discussing a poem by Emily Fine. <laughs> I'll be there for that. <laughs> is this one of those poems that kind of came out, just boom, it was there? Or is this one that you really kind of slowly worked on? to get it to where it is. This one came out fairly easily and quickly, and I didn't work a whole lot on it, truth be told. I mean, I probably did a couple of drafts, but it came out and, you know, I have to give Aaron Adair Hodges kudos because her poem was very inspiring. And so when you're inspired, it makes it easy to, or at least easier to write a poem that you're happy with. Yeah. Do you save all the drafts of each poem? I do. It's funny. I always think I'm going to go back to the previous ones. I almost never do, but I do have them saved. I keep them in a Word document and I keep pushing down the earlier drafts below and I'll do the new one as the one at the top. And then if I change anything, I do it again, just so I can keep particular lines. So even if it's a tiny little change, I still copy and paste another version of it up at the top of the document. So I keep all that stuff just in case. (laughs) Do you, I would think too, like sometimes um, in the very little bit of writing I've done, sometimes you get very attached to something that, you know, like this does not belong here, but it's something I want to remember. Do you have a throwaway document? (laughs) that You put lines that you love. I don't, but I did a couple of years ago. I did take, lines that I liked from a bunch of poems that were never going to go anywhere. Like it'd just be like one line that I wrote and I tried to put them into a poem. That's a great idea. Actually, it'd be really fun. It's almost like a Mad Lib, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah, see where it exactly. goes. <laughs> it was fun, but didn't, didn't end up winning any prizes or getting sent anywhere, frankly. <laughs> So, Shuli, this is in your upcoming collection that we're so excited we got a sneak peek at. And there is the option to pre-order it now, which we're going to put in the show notes. But please tell everybody about the collection. The collection is called Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough. It's being published by Press 53. I write a lot of a lot of my work across genre as the themes of love, loss, grappling with life grappling with grief, um, facing death of people that I love. And so it has a lot of the same themes. Definitely there are pieces about, I should say, broken marriages, broken love. And it's a lot about facing some illness. Um, But I hope in a lot of it, there's also hope. I mean, this isn't a, a poem that I think stands for everything that's in the collection. I don't want people to think it's all just a downer because I think I have a lot of uplifting poems. I have a a love poem to one of my friends uh, who I went to college with and I uh, was um, inspired. Someone had written her own poem of a love poem to her friend. And I thought I'll write one to one of my friends. So, and I've actually written some about you, Emily fine, but they haven't been finished, but Mm. I I think it's important to talk about love in its many forms. And I, I think I do that in this collection. Very cool. Uh, just for listeners who are new to the podcast, Emily and Shuli grew up together 
in the same town as little little ones. Yes, we did. We did. <laughs> Actually, it's funny when you were talking about that you use commas a lot. I'm mm-hmm. a huge comma user, and I swear there was a teacher that we had somewhere maybe in middle school that was all about the comma. Could be. Yeah, I, mean, I use it a lot. I I'm like my fan. commas. And when is the collection coming out? It's coming out early September. 2023. Great. Great. And pre-orders can be taken now. Yes. So there's a link in the show notes for that, as yeah. well as the, the, the poem. We're going to put the poem in the show notes as well, too. Yes. Our newsletter subscribers already got a copy in their news, the newsletter. But yes. So the other thing, just if you could quickly tell people about upcoming workshops and how they can find you. Yes. I have... A prompt writing workshop that I run every Tuesday at noon Eastern time. So it's kind of a lunch hour, at least people on the East Coast. And I run that every Tuesday. It's a lot of fun. We talk over a piece of writing um, very briefly, not mine, somebody else's. And it's always a very short piece. And then I give everybody a prompt that is somehow related to that piece of writing. We have people writing fiction in their memoir, poetry. So the prompt can really get used in all sorts of places. I have a longer prompt writing workshop coming up on April 23rd. And then in May, I have a series of flash essay classes that I'm teaching with two other teachers. And flash essays are really brief personal essays. That's the easiest way. So it's a series of classes. One is on the one sentence essay. I'm teaching one on a micro, which is 300 words or fewer of personal essays. So we have alternative forums. We have a lot of really fun classes. And it's every Wednesday in May from 1130 to one Eastern time, we're going to teach them. These are all online. So it's just going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about that. And they can find it at my website, which is shulikawa.com, S-H-U-L-Y, C-A-W-O-O-D.com. And we are both, we can't say graduates, but we've both taken coursework with Shuli. Yes. We give them all the paws up. So, yes, I still have a, I still have a little quote on my computer at home on my desktop. One of them was a flash fiction. Um, Flash nonfiction. Flash nonfiction. That's right. Yes. Because we read that writer I don't really appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Among others. So, Shuli, it's been so great to have you here. I feel like, and I mean this in a positive, not a negative way, we've all aged together in our the years of the book cougars growing in episode number and your output of material and books. And it's been really fun to have you on the book cougars in all of your various forms, you know, as a memoirist, as a poet as a flash nonfiction writer, as a short story writer. Thank you for sharing your work with us and for being a friend of the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. And it's been wonderful to see your growth. I'm just really proud of you. I've seen your community grow and I'm always in awe of how much you read and how interesting your conversation is. I love listening to it. So I'm a big fan. Thanks. Thanks, Shuli. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy poetry. Yay, Yay. National Poetry Month. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, 
and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.